Well, hello, Sobertown, and welcome to another Sobertown podcast. And my name is Polly. I have an extremely special guest with me today. But before I introduce her to you, I just want to say if you would like to find resources to help you in your journey to recovery, please go to SobertownPodcast.com where you will find so much that you can fill your toolbox with. A lot of articles by our young friend Todd in Australia, who's done a lot of work. Everybody who works on this uh, SobertownPodcast.com is themselves in recovery and comes to this and does it voluntarily. So please go and find some information, some podcasts, and things to help build your toolbox. But with that, I am going to introduce someone who has given me an amazing book to put into my toolbox that I absolutely love. And I've loved reading a lot of the articles that she's published. It's Dr. Stephanie Covington, who is the author of A Woman's Way Through the 12 Steps, plus many, many other books, Helping Women Recover Beyond Trauma. He, Mind and Body is used for recovery in a lot of her um, sessions. But first, I'd like to ask her to tell us about her own journey to helping uh, set up uh, gender-specific or gender-responsive programs for women and how she got there. So please, good morning to you, Dr. Covington. Okay, and why don't you call me Stephanie, okay? Okay, Stephanie, thank you very we, we much. We use the doctor bit when other people feel they have to be called doctor. <laughs> <laughs> but you've heard that title. I, mean, I, I have heard work, that. So. I have heard that title, but what we're doing today is uh, going to be from the viewpoint of Stephanie and Dr. Covington. Um, so how did I get here? Well, I got here because of my own recovery mm-hmm. many years ago, over 40. And, um, you know, I had to acknowledge my own alcoholism. Um, I went to get help. Um, I went to a 12-step group. Actually, I didn't go to stop drinking. I went to a 12-step group because I thought they, I would learn how to drink without having problems. <laughs> Here we go again with that. Yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. I can manage this. Yeah, exactly. somebody, somebody in that group knows how to drink wisely uh, without problems. Moderation. So, exactly. Yes. So that was what I went for. Um, but of course, learned that that probably is not what's going to happen. And um, so in the process of that, I realized about a month into my recovery, I thought what I want to do is help one other woman feel like I do. I felt such freedom. I mean, you know, I had the monkey off my back and um, it just sort of opened things up. And um, and then about a year or so into recovery, I decided to go back to school to get a PhD. I had a master's in social work and I then had a private practice and I started going to conferences to learn more about addiction and they weren't talking about women at all. And so then I would put in an abstract for the next year to go back to the conference Mm -hmm. and do a workshop on women and what are the issues in women's lives. And, um, and over that time then developed a definition of what it meant to be gender responsive, what that meant in women's services. And those of us that were doing that work in the mid to the end of the eighties said, you know, if we can get this right for women, it's going to improve services for men. But if you only focus on services for men, it never improves it for women. Okay. And so now many years later, we talk about being gender responsive for men. And what does that mean? And so um, the idea that there are particular issues and ways of addressing those issues that are specific 
to how we grow up in this society and the and the messages we get. So that's kind of how I how I got here. It was just sort of one step at a time. Things led me from one thing to another. And I I found there was very little out there when I first wanted to get control of my drinking. I found there was very little out there for women. It was yes. mostly directed at men. Yes. And or, or even better, what they call gender neutral. Oh, yes. And gender neutral means I'm men. Female. I'm female. <laughs> yeah. Please, I know. I'm gender gender neutral, neutral means, about me. <laughs> yeah, but gender neutral, when they say, well, we're a gender neutral program, it really means male because mm-hmm. it gender neutral, it reflects the dominant culture. It would be like saying something is race neutral. Well, if it's race neutral, it's white. So it's whatever it's, the, the dominant culture is. It, um, so. it was... It was thought that women were just kept at home, that the men were out and they were the socializers and things like that. So the women were at home. So a lot of it was kept behind closed doors. Yes. And then we had the women's movements start. Um, good and bad in all of it, like everything. It's, it, it's trying to get the balance between the good and the bad to, so that we can all benefit from it. And I think women started asking more questions well, I think they started asking more questions, Polly, but they also shared in those small consciousness raising groups in the 60s and 70s, women began to share about the realities of their lives. Mm-hmm. And they started talking about the things that our mothers never talked about because we were taught not to air our dirty linen. Yes. Kind of thing. <laughs> so women started talking about domestic violence, childhood sexual abuse, addiction to alcohol and other drugs, a whole variety of issues that weren't new in women's lives, but no one talked about. So in the U.S., we got our first domestic violence shelter for women um, in, I think, 1976. Wow. Not because there were no issues with with interpersonal violence before Mm -hmm. that, but there were no services. People didn't talk about childhood sexual abuse in the 60s and 70s. There was a whole hush-hush. So now we talk about these things, but we talk about them basically because women started telling the truths about their lives. And so we began to provide services and we began to provide services for women for uh, substance use disorders that looked at what are the things that are different for women? What, how do we need to address this? And also uh, women are the, usually the caregivers of the children. I mean, I know nowadays I've got boys I've got three boys, one son has got children, and it's an equal partnership. Mm-hmm. It's, it's great to see, but when my parents, it was my mother that did all the caregiving for the children, so women, oh, yeah. and so when women had problems with addiction or violence, they stayed mostly because of the children. Absolutely. And protecting the children, they couldn't go and seek treatment. Right. Who was going to look after the children? They couldn't seek treatment because who looked after the children, plus the stigma. Women historically have carried much more shame and stigma for their addiction than men have. And this is true internationally in every country, that the women are more stigmatized. And when people are stigmatized, it's really hard to seek services. Mm -hmm. You don't want anybody to know. Women kept it hidden as best possible. But now, sometimes, actually, sometimes I think that's too much sharing nowadays with so much social media out there. Well, that's a different story. (laughs) Sometimes we've gone too far the other way. But it's great that there are more services coming 
online and not just men and women, adolescents are really struggling. Oh, very difficult, very difficult. And the other problem is most adolescent services are co-ed. So for a teenage girl to go in a residential adolescent treatment program, it would be, she would probably be there with adolescent boys. And I can tell you when you put boys and girl adolescents in the same group together, they totally defocus. It's all about flirtation. Yeah, it's, it's very sexualized. And so it's not, you know, so we've developed materials for girls and for boys. And we really believe in the value of them being in separate groups where they can focus on themselves. The first and most important relationship in our lives is the one we have with ourselves. And how can we value ourselves? Because if we don't value ourselves, then we can't give to other people. Right. How do we build that self, the, the, the feeling of self within ourselves to help well, us? Yeah, you know, in the, in the Helping Women Recover curriculum, we have a whole module on self because I want the women to begin to answer the question, who am I? And not who I am I, I'm an alcoholic or I'm an addict, but who am I from an internal place? And so we have the women do a whole variety of exercises to begin to explore that about who they are and how they can think about themselves. The inner self, the inner self to me are thoughts, feelings, values, and beliefs. The outer self are relationships and behavior. And so much of what we do, we get focused on the outer self, relationship with others and behavior or our role, mothers, partner, whatever. And so I want the women to have a balance in that, like you said earlier, but I want them to get focused on the inner self, thoughts, feelings, values, and beliefs. Yes, because when we can love and like ourselves, and we don't necessarily have to love ourselves all the time. You can't every day. Well, not 100% of ourselves. But I think if you you can get to like yourself and who you are, Mm -hmm. I mean, I've reached a point in my recovery. I had a conversation with someone about this, that um, when I was actively drinking, I felt I needed to be superwoman. Hmm. You know, I had to look at me. Um, I've done the washing. I've cooked the meal. The house is clean. Um, you know, I've done this. I've done that. And I'm still having my, my wine in the evening. I'm doing really great. I'm doing fine. Yeah, look at me. <laughs> I'm superwoman. But since I've let go of that, it's, it, these are feelings that have started to come to me. Obviously discovering something inside me that... I don't need to be superwoman. No. I I don't need to prove myself to anybody because when I was actively drinking, I needed to prove that I could do all this, that I could cope, that, you know, that I, I've got a disabled husband. I needed to prove that I could look after him, that I would give him the, the care he needed, but keep the house clean, do the laundry, do the shopping. Now I don't feel that I need to prove that. And right. That is such a feeling of, well, what you said, freedom. With each new thing you discover about yourself, this feeling of freedom. Yes. It's, it's like unloading. It's like having this huge backpack on with a big pile of rocks in it. Exactly. <laughs> and unloading each, the rocks. Yeah, and each time you discover something else about yourself, you, a few more of the rocks get right, away right. again. So, but yeah, and one thing from our podcast, uh, not our podcast, sorry, the Zoom that you came and uh, talk to us on Friday. I loved 
to what you said about creating facilitators within women's prisons. In, and it will come, it's obviously in men's prisons as well because it's men and women. But the way that, and to me, that was creating somewhat, it was giving someone a purpose. Right. Is, was that the idea behind it? Well, it was a couple of things. It actually, it was a variety of things. Mm -hmm. um, one is very pragmatic. Prisons are understaffed in terms of people who have the ability to provide programs. Mm -hmm. Prisons are essentially staffed by administrators who are running it and correctional officers who are responsible for control. Mm -hmm. Well, but I needed <laughs> program people, people that wanted to provide a service. So part of it was pragmatic. There are a lot of people inside prisons and many of them have a lot of skills. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is I wanted the women who are, and the men, we do this both, both men and women's prisons, who are there with these long sentences to have something to do with value. Like you said, a purpose that they yes. could be, um, providing something of value. Um, and I also felt that having peer facilitators would be more impactful than having staff. Because if you're trying, I'm a, besides working on an individual level with people who are incarcerated, I also want to change the culture of prisons. And one of the ways to do that, to change the culture of the prison, if you can have those who our residents in the prison begin to reflect the values that are in the materials as they facilitate the groups and as they live their lives outside of the group, you can begin to change culture. So all of those things were important. Then there turns out there was another benefit I hadn't planned on. And that is uh, some of the women who have been released have gone into the community and said to people, you know, I was trained to run this curriculum. I know you're running it in your community-based program and they've gotten hired in the community wow. to run some of the materials. So it turns out it was a job skill. It was, a, they, and they were, and they're good at it. I mean, they're really good at it, well, very they, committed. But not, they come from a place of experience as well because um, right. they, they've been in these situations. Right. work their way through these situations but not only that these facilitators I could see as someone I mean most people I would think in prison I'm, I've never been in prison so please forgive me would look at the correctional officers as the as the authority figure Often, probably yes. wouldn't be able to relate to them in the way that we would want them to relate to, to them so it's the much less so yeah. yeah. So the facilitator is someone that the other that the other uh, inmates can relate to, and exactly. they also and it also I would think creates a better atmosphere within because people are learning skills to manage themselves. Right. Right. And that exactly. that creates a, a whole new dynamic within the prison itself, and it makes them more comfortable within their environment which is not the best environment to be in that's right. probably not the best way to describe it but then the prison officers don't have to be so authoritative i would think because right if, if if you know one of the 
symptoms or responses that what happens with trauma is emotional dysregulation, people not being able to manage their feelings. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine how risky that could be in a correctional setting. So for the people who are residents there, for people who are incarcerated, for them to begin to develop emotional wellness and, and being able to regulate and manage their feelings makes a staff job easier, makes them safer. And as I said, it begins to change the culture. Um, we've also done the program you mentioned, A Woman's Way Through the 12 Steps yes. here in San Diego in the women's jail. We started running A Woman's Way Through the 12 Steps group with a correctional officer co-facilitating with someone from the mental health department. And that has been amazing for the women to see a correctional officer facilitating a woman's way through mm -hmm. the 12 steps because they had what they say is I had to look at them differently. I had to realize that maybe they do care if I get better. See? And so that's another way to begin to make changes in, changes. in the system. Right. You talk about um, helping them express their feelings in, and we know when we, when we give up alcohol or whatever addiction is, we have to start facing feelings and dealing Absolutely. with feelings. How did you deal with yours? There's all sorts of ways people say, they say, well, you have to sit with it and work your way through it. Mm -hmm. Is that the best way to do it? Or is there several good ways to do it? Well, and also it depends, you know, for, for some people, they can do that on their own, you know, mm -hmm. learn to sit with it. Um, and, you know, here's how I think about it. And I work with people around emotional wellness. They're yeah. basically a couple of steps. Okay. The first step is you have to realize you're having a feeling. Now, if you've been abusing alcohol or other drugs, sometimes you're kind of numb. Yep. And there are a lot of women in early recovery who go, I think I'm having a feeling, you know, it's almost <laughs> what is shock. shock, right? So you've got to first be aware you're having a feeling. Step one. Step two is you have to say to yourself, what is it I'm feeling? You have to be able to name it. Am I sad? Am I depressed? Am I angry? Well, you know, what am I? So then you have to figure out what that feeling is. You should also figure out, are you feeling it in your body? Because, you know, we carry our feelings in our bodies. And when we're not expressing, when we're not acknowledging feelings, we're not naming them, um, that's very often where the body breaks down, where we've, uh-huh, a lot of them right up in here. So we have to see where we're carrying the feeling in our body. And then we learn to express the feeling appropriately. Now, a lot of us didn't grow up in families where we learned that. You know, we don't expect two-year-olds to do that, but we do expect adolescents and yes. adults to do that. So then there's learning how to express the feeling appropriately. And the fifth step is the hardest one. And that's actually called containment. And that's where I sense I'm having a feeling. I can name it. I can tell where it's in my body. I know how to express it, but I'm choosing at this period, right at this moment, not to do it now because it isn't the right time, the right place, the right person. Because we've all seen people who just, you know, yeah. they have a feeling and they think it's a message from their higher power to tell the world. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's sometimes 
And, and the containment piece is really a part of adult development, is learning that not only how to express it appropriately, but the when and the timing and having the capacity to contain. Again, two-year-olds don't have the capacity to contain, but we as adults should have. So there's a process involved. And sometimes people can work on that process individually with a therapist, with a sponsor, you know, in a, in a group setting. There are a lot of ways to do the emotional development work. We, we actually had a discussion yesterday because, I, as you know, I do several ladies' Zooms a week and ladies only um, because ladies just need to feel comfortable in a place that they can share. Um, I know men get just as emotional. They struggle with showing emotion a lot of the time where women can just a lot of the time let the emotion out. Um, and we talked about the oversharing. And another thing um, was when someone overshares, it sometimes affects the boundaries that someone else has put around them, mm -hmm. is overstepping a boundary. But not only that, if it's an angry feeling, that anger gets absorbed by whoever is being shared with because the majority of the time, people in addiction are usually people who are empaths that's why they a, a lot of the time they get addicted because they feel the emotion so deeply and they don't want to feel them so they numb them um so we did do we did talk about that and another one was that one of the girls said it had been two years since her mom had passed away and she hadn't been able to cry mm. and we had a discussion and one of the girls said um your brain is telling you you're now safe. So you can cry, you can let it out, you can deal with it now. So it just goes to show how your mind helps you. Sure. Um, and it, like I said, it had been two years since her mom had passed away and she'd finally, she said, I don't know why, but all of a sudden I just started crying. And this girl said, it's because you felt safe. It was time. Yeah. It was time. And we used two acronyms. ACT and HALT. ACT is awareness, clarity or clarifying, and then turning around. I've started to use that a lot more myself, especially when it's feelings. I had one recently where uh, my niece lost her daughter through addiction. It was dreadful. This young girl was only 26. And I got angry. I got really, really angry. And I was walking doing my lake walk in the morning. So that's where I usually do it. And I was extremely angry. And I became aware of the anger that was uh, going around. And I worked my way through it. So I clarified it. And then the turnaround for me was, well, my sister-in-law has got to go and identify her granddaughter. What can I do for her? Mm. So it took it away from me so that it wasn't all about me and moved it to what can I do for her? Which to me, it, I came out of this thinking, my gosh, that was huge. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was huge for me, which I'm loving the growth. And like you said, you wanted other women to feel mm -hmm. these feelings. It's why we've built these groups because we want other women to get to a point where they value themselves because we have got value. 
Of course. And the halt is the hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. Mm -hmm. And we've got a lot of single women, single mothers, single women. And a lot of them have drunk to, to cope right. with everyday life. So now they're giving up alcohol. And then these feelings right. start. It's hard. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a whole progression, you know, of mm -hmm. people think that, oh, well, uh, you've got a trouble with alcohol, problem with alcohol, you stop drinking, well, that'll take care of that. You know, that's the first step in what becomes a very <laughs> easy bit. <laughs> actually, yeah, because now the work begins, now that you have a clear mind. And I would think for your ladies, and even the men who are incarcerated, the ladies, when we spoke about children earlier, these women that end up incarcerated have left their children behind, a yes. lot of them. Yeah. So it's doubly hard for them. Very difficult. Um, yes, the majority of them are mothers, mm -hmm. and the majority of them were the custodial parent at the time of their arrest. Um, although men are very often fathers, they're usually not yeah. at, not the custodial parent or as involved in their children's life or as, as responsible for the kids. So for the women, yes, there's the whole thing about their children. Um, most prisons and most states and most countries really are often in rural settings. And so very often it's hard for people to visit, for people to bring children for visiting. Visiting rooms are not set up well for children. Um, so there's just many layers of, of problems uh, that come from being a mom and then being incarcerated. Why is it so hard for us to change this? To, <laughs> to, maybe I get impatient because of my age, because I think I haven't got that many years left. There's more behind me than there is in front of me. Right, right. And you just, you just want things to change. You want people to wake up. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, the, changing large systems, you know, changing a large system can only happen if the person at the top really wants that change. Mm -hmm. um, change can start at the bottom, but if you don't, the, the, particularly if you talk about criminal justice systems, they're a paramilitary model and um, they're very hierarchical so that um, people at the top are the ones that have more of the power to make change or to implement change. So it's, it's really difficult. However, something I've noticed since COVID, how quickly some of them could make changes because of COVID. So these are systems surprise, that surprise. couldn't change, right? It's just like moving, <laughs> turning the Titanic around. Mm -hmm. um, and I chose the Titanic deliberately because we know it's sunk. Uh, so it's like trying to turn around the Titanic and you think just too big and but they were able to make changes, some changes very quickly when they had to, when, when it, it was essential, yes. when it became necessary. So it tells me that some change is possible. Changes and, are possible. Yeah. And you came into uh, trying to get gender specific gender specific recovery programs when there weren't any so how hard was it for you to get them to accept these changes that women need treatments specific right. to women right i mean well the first the first difficulty was actually getting the addiction field <laughs> to realize that, that women 
needed services and needed to be considered. Uh, people needed to use the lens of women's lives to think about what do we need to be providing in treatment. And so it started with my essentially pushing against the addiction field, both in terms of women's services, but also in terms of trauma. And then X number of years later, I'm now working in the criminal justice system with the same issues. You know, now we've got women's prisons and men's prisons, but the women's prisons really aren't focused on women. They're doing everything just like they do with the men. I mean, still in this country, there are prisons where the women are still wearing prison uniforms that are designed on the on the on the, the male model on the male model. They're men, they're men's sizes and men's shapes. So that tells you how far behind uh, people they're actually, are. They're actually removing a woman's identity in a way. Yeah, and they're taking away her identity. I mean, they've taken away her freedom. Right. And in a lot of these, that I mean, forgive me. I think women are treated really harshly in the justice system. Yeah, they are. Um, but to take away their identity, they've lost their families, they've lost their homes, they've lost their freedom. Now you're taking away their identity as well. I mean, we've got many identities, as we know, moms, wives, um, caregivers, you know, housemate, homemakers. And to take away one of your identities, it's like taking off someone's left arm, you know. Mm-mm. yeah so it's, so it's all horrible. of this yeah so so you know and the national institute of corrections which is a federal agency in dc year number of years ago put out this call and uh, a team i put together we applied and got it and it was to write the guiding principles uh and the strategies for working with women and that was published in 2003 um and it was fascinating, you know, they, because why they wanted this is so many prisons were saying, so many states were saying, we have this influx of women. We have so many more women. We have no idea what we're doing. And so, but again, think how old that document is, 2003. Um, some people still never seen it or heard of it. <laughs> who are it's running nearly prison. 20 years later. And I mean, yes, exactly. Change. So it's like, still still an issue. Yeah. We're still talking about it. We're still trying to get people up to speed. Yeah. And, and long haul. Yeah. And you're talking COVID where they can do things on strictly, just turn it over quite quickly. And yet something from 2003 is still not. It's crazy sometimes. And we, uh, the, the Woman's Way Through the 12 Steps, which is the one that myself and a few of the ladies are dealing with um i think actually um the one sentence i i started to go back through the workbook was the awareness to me saying okay i i think i've just done step one actually after all this time (laughs) nearly 18 months in and i think i'm doing step one i'm aware and i realized that I was not in control, even though I was trying to keep this superwoman image right. going. <laughs> right, right. It wasn't control. You were probably being controlling, but you were not in control. <laughs> yes. And I have a tendency for that anyway. It's, it's the nature of me. And then I had another aha moment this morning when I, well, it was actually yesterday. I was always my mother's helper because I was the eldest girl. Mm. And in a generation where all the kids helped and the eldest girl was 
practically mini mom. I was mini mom. And for quite a while, I resented, you know, that I was used that way. But now I think, you know, I'm my mom and I quite like it. <laughs> so it was, it was a nice thing to discover, uh, which is what's happening the more, the longer I stay away from alcohol. Mm-hmm. And like you said, you wanted other women to feel this. I've reached a point where I really want people to feel this freedom because to remove any kind of addiction from your life, it gives you this huge sense of freedom. Absolutely. And even at my age, I can truly appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't drink until late, as we know, uh, but how free did you feel once you had gone through your first year without your alcohol? Well, I felt not only did I feel free as in free from um, from the, the use, you know, and of having what I call the monkey on my back. But I realized I had been struggling in a marriage, mm-hmm. um, thought about divorce, never did anything. And all of a sudden I thought, oh, funny thing. If you don't drink, you function at night. <laughs> yes. And unconsciously, I think I was afraid that if my kids ever needed me in an emergency, I might not be there to help okay so all of a sudden i knew i had the so that also freed me to think about choices in my life Uh that if i'm not if i'm not using and getting to a place where i can't drive the car or whatever um i everything else i have all these options so in that first year even though they tell you not to make any major changes in your life um actually i made zillions of them and, um, uh, but I also realized afterwards, <laughs> after I made all those changes against advice, yeah. um, not that the decisions were wrong, but that I had really put myself in a vulnerable place. I, not only I, I got divorced, I left uh, the East Coast, came back to the West Coast. And I remember thinking the first couple of weeks, I was here and I'm staying at my sister's while thing, the moving band was coming and all that stuff. And I felt like I'd put my finger in an electric outlet. I just, <laughs> and I thought, this is why you shouldn't be doing this. There was such stress and tension so pressure. and pressure. And it was way too disruptive for my kids. It was, you know, it, there were things about it um, that, um, so I felt free and I felt free to make lots of changes that uh, they should have been um, spaced out. I think we get quite impatient, don't we? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think some of that is because we feel like we've wasted so, so much time. Right. Need to get on with it. Yeah. You know, I need, I should have done this sooner. And rather than take things step by step, we try and do the controlling thing all over again (laughs) and manage the whole thing as a whole and then we wonder why we sit there and go oh my god what on earth have I done you know it it's it's it is hard um but eventually but it's like anything in life 
it may have been overwhelming at the time and you sit there and you think maybe I should have took longer but then sometimes you think think maybe ripping the band-aid off and doing it like that was the best thing right and who knows you know we make our decisions and we live with the uh Results of those things, and Back we keep choices. moving forward. Yeah, and we Back to and, the choices we make, and, and, I and think always looking at what lessons did I learn? What, what I, I think learned? as women, I think the biggest thing we feel is shame in a lot of ways that we can't. When we were drinking, we couldn't be there. Like you said, you worried about if you your children needed you in the night. One of the things that struck me was my husband was getting worse, and I thought what would I do if anything happened in the middle of the night? Mm-hmm. And how would I, I could call an ambulance for him, but how would I follow the ambulance? Right. How can I, exactly. I can't, can't get behind the wheel of the car and follow the ambulance. So right. Those kind of and then the guilt creeps in and you think, and so you suppress the guilt by having another glass of wine. So <laughs> you, you perpetuate everything for quite a long while until all right, of a sudden right. you reach the point where right. you think, I really can't do this anymore. This is just ridiculous. I can't do this. I've got to stop this. And after trying many, many times, for some reason, that one time, it just worked. Right. And I love it. I love the life as it is now. Mm-hmm. I, love, I, lo- I love my evenings. Um, I can watch the TV past seven o'clock now. Right, you might even see the whole show. (laughs) And remember watch the end of the film. I can watch the end of the film. But it it is, and those are the things you tend to appreciate, but also the feeling, yeah, but also when you've done something good for yourself like that, you've gone to bed sober, you've done something good for yourself, it it helps that inner self, Mm -hmm. that, that, that you inside, and it, it helps you have pride in yourself because we have a right to be proud of ourselves. And all those ladies who are working and learning how to manage their lives without all the supplements and addictions and whatever, and learning to be real, because that's what we are once, once we get rid of all the addictions, we become real. Mm-hmm. Um, my hat's off to them because it's not easy. I don't know how I would have done this if I was much, much younger. Um, I, I dread to think, but I love where I am. And you have done so much to help women find themselves in a way. But, well, not necessarily find themselves. You've helped women You've given them the tools to help find themselves and take pride in themselves. You know, I feel really grateful. I mean, what could be more, I mean, for many of us, we spend a lot of hours, days, years of our lives working. And I've been able to do work that is just so rewarding. Mm -hmm. You know, I had no idea that morning when I thought I want to help one other woman that this is where I'd be today, where it's been multiple women. And um, so I'm grateful. I'm really grateful, not just for my recovery, which was sort of the Kickstarter of all this, but having having the ability to do work that is uh, so, so rewarding and so fulfilling. And 
to know that you've helped mm. one woman feel the way you did mm-hmm. at the end of your first month. I heard an expression today, was it, uh, you know that I care. Was it? No, you care that I know, but do you know that I care? Mm. That was it. You care that I know, but do you know that I care? So I thought it was wonderful, but I I can't thank you enough for this. This has been wonderful. And our ladies are going to get so much out of listening to this one. So I know you're very busy. I thank you for the tools that you've given us. Absolutely. You've given us 12 steps that we can follow to build a foundation to a better life. The trauma books. Um, if I was a lot younger, I'd, I'd, I think I'd work at being a facilitator because this is, I find this. <laughs> I think you'd love it. I would love it. Just, you would love like it. Said, just to see one woman find herself within herself right. and build her life would be, it fills your soul. It makes you feel good. So Absolutely. once again, thank you so much for taking that. Well, and thank you, Polly, for all the work you're doing. This is great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I will hopefully talk to you again. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.